Good morning. It's great to see you, uh, everybody joining us in the theater and online. I'm so glad you're here. If we've never met, my name's Jay, and I'm part of the team here. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Um, if you don't know, for the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring uh, the unseen, what the Bible says about the supernatural, and it's been a fascinating journey so far. And today, we're going to sort of continue the conversation by talking about the tactics of this great enemy of God that uh, the Bible calls the devil or the Satan. And to begin, I want to share the story of a young man with you. He's not a young man anymore. He was once a young man. I'll show you a photo of him running. Um, this is Alexi Santana. And you'll notice, you know, it says Palo Alto, went to Palo Alto High School. Now, here's what you need to know about Alexi Santana. Alexi Santana grew up an orphan. He grew up an orphan in the deserts of Utah, and he would literally, like, grew up alone. He was abandoned as a child. And he would spend his days reading philosophy books and running through the desert. I mean, he would run miles and miles every single day. Now, long story short, he eventually found his way here to the Silicon Valley and enrolled at Palo Alto High School where he became a world-class, highly recruited high school track athlete. And because he was such a good runner and he was a pretty good student, he eventually got a scholarship to Princeton University where he began to run for the Princeton University track team. That happened in 1989. But then something really interesting happened to Alexei Santana. Three months into his enrollment at Princeton University, the officials at Princeton University came to discover that Alexei Santana wasn't actually Alexei Santana. But instead, I'll show you the next photo, he was a man named James Hogue, who was actually much older than uh, he proclaimed to be. You know, he wasn't an 18-year-old freshman. He was already in his mid to late 20s at this time. And the Princeton officials came to discover he was actually given the scholarship because of his incredible story, growing up an orphan, training by himself in the, in the deserts of Utah, you know, getting into Palo Alto High School. They came to discover that all of it was made up. It was a lie. And that James Hogue was actually just a con man. He was a con man that had done this before, and eventually, even after his arrest, he would do this again. James Hogue would find himself time and time again in and out of jail because of identity theft. Now, the reason I share this story with you is because in one particular interview, James Hogue said that at certain points, he was so deep in the lie that he began to believe it himself. Like he was so committed to the lie that he would trick himself into believing, I really am Alexi Santana, an orphan boy who grew up in Utah, who's a world-class runner. Like he actually believed his own lies. And that sounds ridiculous to us, but if you really think about it, maybe you don't pull off cons like this, but there are lies you believe about yourself too. These lies become so perpetuated, so pervasive in our lives that we forget that they are not true, and we begin to live as if they are true. The writer, David Brenner, puts it this way. He says, it's not so much that we tell lies, it's that we live them. 
Now, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that during week one of this series, what we established was that even though most of us live in a primarily material world, what that means is that the worldview most of us have inherited is a worldview that states the only thing that's real is the stuff you can see and taste and touch and feel, right? But that the biblical authors seem to explicitly declare that there is actually a spiritual realm that exists right in our midst, stuff that we cannot physically experience, but is just as real nonetheless. And more than that, what we established was that this spiritual realm is full of spiritual creatures, many of them working not for our good, but for our ill, desiring, waging war, to win our souls. And their their intention and motivation is essentially to fracture human souls and to fracture human societies. But we also discovered that there is a God who rules and reigns over all things, spiritual and seen, and that he is writing a particular story. And because of this, those of us who say yes to Jesus and find ourselves in the family of God have nothing to fear. Now, last Sunday, if you missed it, I would encourage you, because today is almost like a part two from last Sunday. Last Sunday, Steve talked about the devil or the Satan. And we call him the Satan because Satan is not a name. It's a title. It's a descriptor. And this character in the scriptures is um, depicted as God's great enemy, the great deceiver, the great liar. And his desire, again, is to wage war for our souls and for our societies, that God has declared war against him. And through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God has already won victory on our behalf. Steve had this great line uh, last Sunday. He said that, you know, those of us who say yes to Jesus, we have to remember we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. The victory is already Hours. And so today what I want to do is I want to deep dive a little bit more, specifically not into who Satan or the devil actually is. You can um, listen or watch on our website last week's teaching if you're interested in that. But I want to actually specifically, I want to get practical and deep dive into Satan's tactics, the way he wages war for our souls. And here's the thing. Satan's tactics, most of us, when we think about God's great enemy, the devil or the Satan, and how he might attack us, most of us um, have these images of like like pop culture, media-infused images of how the devil works, right? And it's almost always like wildly supernatural. It's almost always like visions of that movie, The Exorcist, that you weren't supposed to watch when you were 12, but you did anyways with your friends, and then you couldn't sleep for two weeks, right? Like most of us have that sort of vision in our minds. Now, here's the thing. There is, I believe, there is some truth to that. Like I actually do believe that the enemy, the devil, and the the forces of evil, as Paul puts it, in, the, in this dark world and in the spiritual realm, sometimes their tactics do express themselves in these wild, supernatural, maybe on the surface at least, a little bit scary ways, right? I believe that happens. In fact, um, some of you may uh, have experienced things like that. 
In my own life, I have had certain moments in my history where I have seen and experienced things that I cannot explain other than to say the enemy of God was blatantly expressing himself in these wild supernatural ways. But that is not most primary. See, like the reason this is important is because if we believe that the enemy of God, the primary way he attacks Christians is through these wild supernatural things, then we will live our lives believing that if nothing wildly supernatural is happening, we're okay. The enemy doesn't think about me, doesn't care, isn't waging war for my soul. But the reality is he is almost every moment of every day. Now, During this teaching series, we've been pointing you to a a page on our website. I'll put up the QR code and the URL here just so you have it. Um, A lot of you may actually have questions about these wildly supernatural things. We don't have time during the teaching on Sundays to get into all the details, but if you go, um, you can pull out your phone and just scan that QR code or just go to that URL. And if you go to that page, there's a bunch of books that we would recommend if you're interested. There are also a series of videos from our friends at the Bible Project that gets into some of this stuff. Uh, but also, we just posted this week, like an over hour, it's, an, it's over an hour long. It's an interview that Dave Tish and I did with Dr. Gary Brashears, who is a professor up at Western Seminary in Portland, also just one of the most astute theological minds that uh, I know, and um, we asked him all sorts of questions about all the crazy stuff. So he talks about angels and demons, the Nephilim, um, exorcisms. He talks about exorcisms, demon possession, and there's actually time markers on the page. So you can like, you don't have to watch the whole 70 minutes. You can go to the time marker with the topic that's interesting to you. So if you have questions about all the crazy stuff, I would highly recommend go to that page at some point, watch that video. Uh, You can jump ahead to whichever question you're most interested in, and and we hope and pray that'll be a helpful resource to you. But like I said, yes, the devil or the Satan does express his work of waging war on our souls in wild supernatural ways from time to time. But in those long stretches of life, when we don't experience the wildly supernatural, it does not mean that the devil is idle. It does not mean that the devil doesn't care, isn't waging war for your soul, because the devil has a much more common, pervasive, and primary tactic in waging war for our souls. And it's really subtle, it's really insidious, and it is the tactic of lies. Lies. Um, Last week, Uh, Steve read this verse. I'll read it to you again because it describes this in great detail um, and just sets the tone for us and makes it really clear. John chapter 8, verse 44. The devil was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This means... The devil gives birth to lies. Think about that. Every lie we believe that is destructive to our souls, you can connect dots to the great enemy of God. Every lie that tells you you're not worth it, you'll never make it. Every lie that tells you everything is headed nowhere, it's all gonna crash and burn. 
every lie that whispers in your ear that you haven't done enough or achieved enough or become enough, you can connect those dots to hell itself. Think about that. He is the father of lies. Our friend John Mark Comer, he puts it this way. He says, lies that come in the form of deceptive ideas are the devil's primary method of enslaving human beings and entire human societies in a vicious cycle of ruin. This comes from John Mark's book, Live No Lies. If you're interested, I would highly recommend it to you. He sort of unpacks a bit of what we're gonna do today in great detail. Uh, it's been a helpful resource to me. Our entire staff actually read this book as well as our elders. Fantastic resource. Uh, again, it's on our resource page as well. Now, the devil's tactic of lies, remember, he is the father of lies. He gives birth to lies. The devil's tactic of lies has been true since the beginning, literally the beginning. So let's go to the beginning. Genesis chapter three. This is when we are introduced to this great enemy of God. And in the Genesis chapter three story, the devil or the Satan, God's great enemy, waging war for our souls, reveals himself in the form of a serpent. Let me read for you the story, Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And the devil re responds, the serpent, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, in this introductory story where we are introduced to the devil in the form of a serpent, he shows his cards. And I believe that the devil is really sophisticated and lies in all sorts of insidious crafty ways, he's crafty, right, as the story says. But I also believe this story reveals to us three of the key ways in which he most consistently lies in order to wage war for our souls. And he still continues to lie in these ways today, generations after this first initial story. Let's just go through them one by one. The first lie, Satan lies about what God really says. Satan lies about what God really says. Genesis 3, verse 1, right? He says it right off the bat. Did God really say? Like, did God really say that? It's like the planting of doubt. Like, I don't, I don't know, did he? You know, in 2016, um, Oxford Dictionary, many of you know this, Oxford Dictionary, every year they pick, uh, they select a word of the year, and they select the word of the year based on how a particular word has informed and shaped culture and society on a global level. And in 2016, six years ago, Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. And the reason is because in the past half century, and it sort of culminated in the early 2010s, in the past half century or so, with the rise of what um, is often called postmodernism. The concept of truth, singular, has been pulled apart and dispersed into a series of truths, plural and personalized. 
The postmodern claim is that truth is only that which is true for me. This is why we have the idea now, which is literally a half century old idea. You don't find this any time in human history, in any literature before the, the mid 20th century. We now have a concept called my truth. This is my truth and you cannot infringe upon my truth. My truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Is anybody familiar with this? You've heard this before. You've seen it on Instagram, right? It's my truth. I have I've discovered my truth. Okay, I wanna be sensitive here. And I, in some ways, I understand what people are attempting to do. I think people are attempting to find meaning and purpose and significance and identity. And that is a good pursuit. But the idea that you can find those things by discovering my truth is actually that search gone awry because here's the deal. There is no such thing as my truth. If a truth is only true for you, it actually betrays the definition of truth. If something is actually true, by its very nature, it has to be true for everybody. I don't mean to offend, it's literally just the definition of truth. A thing cannot be true for you, but not true for someone else. At its most baseline level, truth is truth. And in such an age, declaring that the God of the Bible is the sole and singular arbiter of truth is an outrageous and offensive claim. If you are in this room right now and you are a follower of Jesus and you believe that God has spoken to his people through the scriptures, you are an offensive person in culture today. You're offensive. How dare you tell me that this ancient library of books declares the singular truth about the universe? But we have to make a decision. Either that is true or it is untrue. Now I know there are some of us in the room or maybe watching who wouldn't consider ourselves Christians. And if that is you, one, we are so grateful you're here. And we have no expectation that you believe what the other Christians in this room believe. It is okay to not believe it. But you just need to know this is the Christian claim. The Christian claim is that there is truth and it is singular. And that God and God alone is the arbiter of that truth. Now, the reality that um, Christians claim that there is one God who is the arbiter of truth, being an offensive claim in culture today, this is something that Satan has used to his advantage. But again, for followers of Jesus, the scriptures are clear. Psalm 119, all your words are true. John 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Satan lies about what God really says, and in our culture today, this has expressed itself in the concept of many truths. And for followers of Jesus, to combat the lie of Satan we have to remind ourselves that there is only one truth. More on that in a little bit. Satan also lies about outcomes. Uh, verse three, what does Satan say? 
you will not certainly die. But then you keep reading the story and what happens to humans after Genesis 3? They die. Like, we still die. You all came to church today for some encouragement, but I'm just gonna be honest with you. You're gonna die. You will die. Dead, just dead. That is coming. You know, let me just depress you even more. You are, you are 19 minutes closer to death now than you were when I started talking. Think about that. You just lost 19 minutes, 20 minutes of your life listening to me. What a waste. Anyways. <clears throat> Satan essentially declares this. He's like, hey, did God really say you shouldn't eat this fruit? They're like, yeah, if we eat it, we're going to die. Listen, you're not going to die. You know what that is? It's Satan declaring, just take matters into your own hands and things will turn out great. That's the modern translation. When Satan says, you will not certainly die, he's basically saying, did God really say that? Nah, forget that. Do your thing. This fruit looks good, right? Eat it. It'll turn out great. You will not certainly die. This lie is prevalent in our culture again today. And one of the ways it shows up most often is in the myth of human progress. On a macro level, we believe the lie that human intellect, innovation, and ingenuity can lead us to some sort of social utopia. Uh, me and some friends of mine, we joke often. Now, I want to be clear here. I, I don't want to offend anybody who is um, working on a startup. But I love watching videos of startup founders presenting to venture capitalists. And I love it. Because what they always say is, um, we believe that there is a problem in this world. And we believe <clears throat> that this new coffee maker technology will change the human race forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like this beautiful poetic hyperbole, right? It's like there's this, <clears throat> there's an issue. And humans live in fear. But our new technology for this doorbell <laughs> will free humanity from fear. Give us $2 million, right? It's like so awesome. I love it so much. And if I were in startup world, I would do the exact same thing. So no, I'm not throwing shade at you at all. But there are remnants in that sort of like hyperbole. There are these remnants of this belief in the myth that we can achieve in and of ourselves a particular outcome that we are after. Now, I'm, again, I'm not knocking, I love startup culture. It's made our world a better place in many ways. I love innovation. So I'm not knocking those things. I'm simply saying we have to put them in their rightful place. Can we make our world a better place? Yes. Should Christians especially partner with God in trying to make the world a better place? Absolutely. But can we achieve that ultimate goodness, the good life God originally intended in Genesis 1 and 2 in and of our ourselves. No. There's nothing you can invent. There's no technology. There's no amount of innovation or ingenuity or money that will get us to Eden again. That path only, only goes through the cross. <clears throat> On an individual level, we believe this lie in our personal lives, that if I can just achieve enough, succeed enough, 
gain enough social capital that I can create and craft for myself a life truly worth living. And yet in the 21st century, in the Western world, we have more affluence, more money, more achievement, more success than at any point in human history. And yet the, the, the rates of um, loneliness, isolation, depression, sadness, brokenness, broken relationships, broken homes, those numbers are skyrocketing. We are smarter than ever and sadder than ever. We are richer than ever and we are more broken than ever. This is a myth that we can determine outcomes. Now this is humbling, but let me read for you Romans chapter 11 where the writer Paul is actually pulling from all sorts of passages in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and he puts us in our rightful place. What does he say? He's talking about God. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever, amen. This is the path to the outcomes we long for. Yes, to invent and innovate and make our world a better place in partnership with God, yes, but to do it in surrender to God's will, trusting that only God can lead us to the outcomes we long for. And finally, Satan lies about God's desires and our identity. It's sort of a two for one. He says in verse five, the Satan, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Satan puts doubt in the first human's minds about God's desires. He essentially, this is a subtle way of Satan depicting God as an insecure control freak, fearful that humans might open their eyes, right? As if God is hiding something from human beings. But God's not hiding something from the humans. He's protecting them. He's protecting them in his great knowledge. He is protecting them and keeping them from a decision that will lead to their demise and to their death. He's protecting them because God knows best and we do not, and God loves us. That's why he's doing what he's doing. And yet Satan twists it all up. He's like, oh, God, he's keeping this from you because he's insecure. He doesn't want you to open your eyes, and um, he, he doesn't want you to be like God. But you can be like God. This is a lie about God's desires or his intentions and our identity, that we could be like God. What do we read in Isaiah 55? What does God actually say? He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But God is not just like big and huge. We also read in 1 John chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This great, big God, the creator of all things, whose ways and thoughts are greater and higher than our own, that are like unimaginable, right? He loves us as a father. That's our identity. We are his children. No matter what culture tells you, no matter what that voice in the back of your mind tells you about your worth, you are children of God and you are beloved. You don't have to achieve it for yourself. You don't have to pursue God-like status. 
you already are the son or the daughter of God. And we often believe Satan's lie that God's not for us, that he's holding out on us, that we have to forge our own way, define our own identities, and we forget that we are already beloved sons and daughters, heirs to the good things he has in store. Galatians 4, because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. If a child is also, uh, and if a child then also an heir through God. In Romans 8, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, or any powers, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't have to strive to become God. You are already in his family, his son, his daughter. So these three key lies about what God really says, about outcomes, and about God's desire and our identity. How do we combat these lies of Satan? Dallas Willard writes this, thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. There, the light of God first begins to move upon us through the word of Christ. And there, the divine spirit, the Holy Spirit, begins to direct our will to more and more thoughts that can provide the basis for choosing to realign ourselves with God and, with, and his way. This is why Paul in Romans 12 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world or culture at large, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In a world starving for truth and amid our own confusion about what's true, we combat Satan's lies about what God really says by reading and meditating on the scriptures. Before you open your New York Times or your CNN or your Fox News app, open the scriptures. Saturate your heart and mind on the truth that is God revealed to us through his word. Rather than struggling and striving to control outcomes, we combat Satan's lies about outcomes by surrendering our will to God. You know, there's a paradox in surrender when it is surrender to the God of the universe who loves you as a father. Surrender sounds to us like imprisonment because we have war imagery in our mind. If you surrender to the enemy then you are now a prisoner of war. And particularly in the, in the late modern Western world with our individualism and autonomous sort of um, wherewithal, we don't like to surrender. But remember, surrendering your will to God is not surrendering to an enemy. It is surrendering to a God who is the creator of all things, who loves you and has good in store for you. It is not imprisonment, it is freedom. You surrender yourself to the free life with a God who will lead and guide and direct your every step. And when we struggle with doubt about God's posture toward us and our significance and self-worth, we combat Satan's lies about God's desire and our identity by receiving and giving God's love in and through, in particular, Christian community. That's why you'll notice, David will talk about this more in a moment, you'll notice a bunch of us on staff are wearing these Next Step t-shirts because today we are inviting you in a very practical way to take your next step into the life of our community. 
This service is awesome. I love being here with all of you every Sunday. But I am telling you, if you are not in, in like a smaller community in our church, a life group or a mid-sized group, some sort of life stage ministry, in particular life groups where you can do life with 8 to 10 to 12 other people who really know you and can be with you and journey alongside you, man, you're missing it. You're missing it. So I'd encourage you to take that next step. I'm going to invite Mark and the team to come back up, and we're going to sing and respond here uh, in a moment. We're going to sing these words that declare who we really are, our true identity. We're going to sing in order to combat Satan's lies about us. Before we do that, um, Mark Twain, the great writer Mark Twain, he once said this, when in doubt, tell the truth. When in doubt, tell the truth. That's my hope and prayer for us. Uh, last year, I was, um, I was on some travel. I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is anybody from Grand Rapids, Michigan, by the way? I don't want to offend. Are you really from Grand Rapids, Michigan? Okay. What a beautiful city. I loved it there. <laughs> it's the epicenter of goodness in our world. What was your name? Greg? Greg, Greg from Grand Rapids. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't enjoy my time there that much. <laughs> um, so, Greg, Grand Rapids is like a lot bigger than I expected it to be, you know, to me at least as a newbie. So I'm in Grand Rapids. It actually is kind of a cool city. The downtown's pretty cool. And uh, I was there for some meetings and to do some ministry stuff out there. And I'm driving from my hotel to a meeting that I need, needed to be at, and for some reason, my phone lost all reception. And so I remember kind of seeing the directions on my Google Maps before I headed out. Like, I looked through the whole thing, you know? So when I lost the directions, you know, like, many of you will relate to me. You know what I said to myself, right? It's like, I got this. <laughs> it's like, I got it. I'm good. It's like I feel, So I'm, like, driving and turning left and right, and I'm looking at street signs, and I'm like, and I kept saying to myself in my own mind, I repeated this phrase, like, I feel like it's right. You know what I mean? I was like, just trust, trust you, my truth. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> my truth will lead me there. So I'm like turning left and right. 30 minutes later, I have no idea where I am. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm late to this meeting. How embarrassing. So I finally pull over to a gas station. I have the address and I tell them, my phone the, like, I'm getting no reception. Google Maps is not working. Um, I'm trying to get to this address. Would you write it down for me? So they look it up on their phone, and they wrote it down. And, of course, eventually, following the directions, I got there. I just feel like so many of us in our lives were just satisfied living the perpetual loop driving around, turning left, turning right, telling ourselves, ah, I feel like I'll get there. And then we're just utterly frustrated because we never do. You know what I'm saying? The enemy desires for you to just circle your life and go nowhere. He desires for you to just live in the perpetual loop of your brokenness, your sense of um, your lack, maybe, of self-worth, the fear and anxiety of not being able to truly control outcomes. 
the cultural narratives that tell you this is true and that is true and this is true for you, but it's not true for me. All these lies, right, that primarily come down, I think this is the one, of the, one of the primary ways that the enemy lies to us. This has been true in my life, in our home. Um, one of the primary ways is like lying to you about you. Like you're not, you're, you're nothing. You'll never make it. No one loves you. No one cares. No one really cares. Like, you haven't succeeded enough. You haven't achieved enough. Look at Joe's Instagram. Look at Mary's Instagram. Why doesn't your life look like their life? Why doesn't your body look like their body? Why doesn't your, you know, stock portfolio look like their portfolio? Jay, why do you drive a CRV and not a Tesla? Right? That one's real, by the way. That was a lot, that was a very, that was a very vulnerable opening my heart. If anyone has a spare Tesla, call me. So, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Why? Like we do, that's, that's from hell. You are loved. You are a child of the creator God. There is nothing you've done or has been done to you. There is nothing you can possibly do that will separate you from the love of God. And if the creator God, who has already won victory for us, calls you a son or a daughter, what does anything else matter? What does it matter how much or how little you have, how much or how little you achieve? What does it matter how big or small the house, married or single, kids or no kids, retirement or no retirement? What does it matter? God, the creator of the universe, sent his son to die for you because he loves you. And that is the truth. Everything else is a lie. So let's sing that truth together.